Janard Nirenberg here with Launching Deeply, and I'm sitting here with Bertrand Cooper, who is an accomplished writer uh, at outlets, including The Atlantic, The New York Times, and a bunch of other places, a very, very sharp cultural commentator. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. And I know it's early days for the podcast, so I'm excited to be a part of this lineup. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. And... Yeah, I know we were just chatting a second ago. Um, my goal is really to kind of get into the weeds with other creatives about what this life is like, um, the ups, the downs, you know, how people arrived at where they are now. And your journey has been so interesting. And I know we've had conversations over the last couple of years about like class and poverty and straddling multiracial identity and all of these various things. Um, what do you see as the core of your work these days and how did you get there? Yeah, um, I think the core of my work really is focused on depictions of poverty, of American poverty. Most of my work from one angle or another is normally comparing two or more images that we have of American poverty. A lot of times my work is looking at how does pop culture think about poverty versus what does the academic literature say about poverty or looking at what are the experiences of most poor people versus what people have going on in their heads about it. Um, coming up in poverty, I'm black and white and both sides of my family were poor and white poverty has its own famous history as does black poverty. And it more or less gave me a perspective on what it's like to be in that. But coming into writing, a lot of my focus, you know, I've gotten to come in contact with that. Poverty is very, <laughs> it sounds odd to say, but it's very popular to write about. It's very popular to make movies and television shows and do all these things about poverty. Um, but a lot of folks involved in that process don't actually come from poverty. And this really shouldn't be surprising. I mean, what we're learning from all this media, everything that we're reading about in the newspaper, or watching movies is how terrible poverty is. And if you really appreciate how harsh it is, well, then you don't really expect many people to go from that to working at Netflix. It's just, uh, that's a low odds proposition. So um, for me, it's it's kind of this, it creates this interesting situation where I don't have many class peers in the writing world. There's not a ton of people from my same background. Um, and that gives me a lot to write about. But there's also a bit of melancholy in that because I wish there were more writers from my background. I mean, you know, we get so much out of reading about other people's experiences when they mirror our own. And a lot of time, uh, a lot of times I'm it's few and far between that I find other people from my same experience writing about it or making movies about it. So, um, yeah, that's my experience is so long winding. I never know how to consolidate it, but going back to your actual question, you know, I fell backwards into writing because I noticed as I was participating, you know, I was going to graduate school and I was finally in that echelon of society where people are very, very concerned with politics and very concerned with, um, what's going on socially. And these things are far removed from them. You know, when you're growing up in poverty, everything is very, very 
immediate. I think that's true probably of any hardship in life. You know, if you're dealing with cancer or disease in your family, it's very immediate versus somebody who's maybe studying at graduate school. And so when I got to graduate school, I wasn't anticipating being a writer. It was more like I got frustrated and annoyed that the culture was very focused on something that my life was a part of, but they didn't have insight into it really. So then I tried to write about it. And in the process of that, I learned how much I didn't know. To your point about the intricacies of being a creative, I didn't know what went into it at all. I mean, the first time I sent something to an Atlantic editor, I just thought, um, I just thought if the writing was good enough, I could get there. And the editor was incredibly kind to me. I've been so lucky to have like kind editors, even when they're rejecting me. But I'd spent two years basically trying to translate my experience into the type of long form essay that was being written a lot from 2014, 2016. Um, to give an example, these are, you know, people like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who was churning out 12,000 to 16,000 words. That's what I wrote. And the editor was nice enough to let me know, like, you're not a staff writer or already famous. You are not getting an essay of that length published. Um, so after that, it more or less took me breaking down this, this was really the core of my thought, which I haven't gotten to yet, but just to give your audience really this piece, cause I, I want, I feel like most of what I write about, if people had the same information as me, they could use their own imagination to get there. And so the very core of what I'm working with a lot of times is just this, that if you look at all poor Americans, you put them in one big basket, you look at poor children, just 14% of them are going to get a bachelor's degree, um, which is close to saying 90% of all of America's poor children are not going to get a bachelor's degree. And if you use your imagination and you think to yourself, well, how many industries require a bachelor's degree to gain entry? Well, now suddenly, you know, just from that one fact, all of these places that poor folks are not going to be, they're not going to be able to influence the culture. So, you know, they're not going to get to be most of the lawyers, most of the teachers, most of any of these things, but they're also not going to be most of the novelists, most of the journalists, most of the scientific researchers. And, um, you know, there's this saying in research that most research is me search, uh, getting back to the idea that your questions often come from your life. So if you have this whole group of people who are not the ones asking questions then their experience tends to just not be in there. So there was this, I mean, graduate school, I see everyone focused on poverty. Um, I knew something about it. I tried to write about it, but it took me probably three years to find um, the outlets that were interested in class. You know, I was coming from a real apolitical background. Um, I wasn't coming from a family that thought about politics or political economy or did much reading in any of those things. We didn't vote. Uh, you know, I came from like a very just the general understanding that basically anyone with authority was probably a crook. Politicians can be trusted, just a, a general, <laughs> typical poor, um, apoliticism. And so I didn't know that class was politicized in the way that it was. I didn't know, okay, class issues belong to left of center issues. And then within left of center issues that gets split again, again, so that there's really only three to five magazines that are going to focus on like a class analysis. And of those, some of them are hardcore class analysis where it's, you know, political wonks, but I'm interested 
in the pop cultural intersection what the ordinary person is gaining from all this so it's it was this long road to figure out where is the the magazine that lets me write about this that's such a winding answer to what you asked me i'm sorry <laughs> no i love it i love it i love that you're weaving together all of these themes because i think the 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 question and in, in your answer, like it, it deserves that sort of long winding, um, all these different threads because it's not a common path. I mean, I think like, you know, your, your, your journey is unique. I think that the barriers to entry in every creative industry have just gotten higher and higher and higher and higher. Right. I feel like a few decades ago, the pop culture that, that we grew up on was largely about people kind of coming up and breaking through, but those were like stories, right? I don't know how much that is actually happening now to your point, you know, like what gets portrayed in mass media, who, who is chosen to portray certain characters, for example, um, don't necessarily reflect the actual, backgrounds. And I think one thing that I think about a lot regarding these themes is just the massive disconnect in understanding and perception then, right? I think in terms of, so in your case, you write a lot about race and class. And so if, if the American public is less informed about these intersections, and they are relying on avenues like pop culture to inform their perception and their understanding of the world and their understanding of these issues. But then the, the portrayal is sort of not, I guess authentic is the word. Um, it's not authentic. That's the disconnect that you're pointing out in a lot of your writing these days. Um, is that where you're coming from? Like, are you concerned about that disconnect? It's, it's like, people are not having a, a sort of understanding that is based on reality? That is a, it's a big part of the concern. There's some, so there's some key elements here um, that I would tease apart, but yeah, what you're saying is my big concern. How we get there is um, perhaps a, a bit interesting. So just to ground it, <laughs> um, which is probably, the direction from which I work best. Something that a lot of folks are not aware of, you know, we use the term minority a lot. And some people who have heard me before might recall me saying this, but minority is actually a number designation. It's a numerical designation. It's not a byword for being non-white, although it does get used that way. And just to show how pivotal this is to understand is that, you know, Netflix, one of the most popular streaming services for a while when they were promoting their comedy, they were showing, you know, different comedian segments. There's been several black comedian segments that they put together. Wanda Sykes comes to mind where she makes a joke about how like what everybody needs is a black friend that would clear a lot of this up. And you very casually hear people talk about how, you know, the need for having a black friend, the need to getting to a point where you actually get invited to a black person's house and you are the only you know, person who isn't black there. A lot of people find that to be a really organic explanation or um, solution to things. And here's where it gets tricky. Black people are a minority. 
they're 12 to 13% of the population given a year that just to go into the math means the only way everyone could have a black friend is if every single black American down to infants had six white friends right now. It's not possible. It's a completely impossible solution. Most people don't even know that. And they don't know it to the degree that when Gallup polls Americans on how many black people they think are in the country, normally around a third of Americans think half the country or nearly half the country is black. So we've already gotten comfortable with the idea that even though we call the minorities, we're comfortable with this dissonance of thinking or this dissonance where we just assume they're nearly half the country. That's not true. And that's the only reason why people go around thinking, oh, you could just have a black friend or you assume if somebody doesn't have a black friend that they're doing it intentionally as opposed to reality, which is it's just not feasible. Our populations are too uh, disparate between the white majority and the black minority. Now, moving from those numbers and where pop culture plays a role, this has been studied before. Um, I want to say one of the big books on this is Thinking Fast and Slow. That was Daniel Kahneman. Um, in the, when American or when any human has direct experience of something, they will default to their own personal experience. It's actually very difficult to convince them that their experience is wrong. When they have no experience, they will rely on pop culture to fill in the blanks. Um, they will, and it doesn't just have to be pop culture. It could be quote unquote old wise tales, folk stories, but they will default to these stories that just circulate. So now we have black Americans who are one, you know, <laughs> there's no way you're going, there's no way for every white American to know them. That puts pop culture instantly in this role of being the main educational force um, about black folks. And black folks in a lot of people's minds have this intimate association with poverty that does have some historical basis. But black people also become this way in pop culture of addressing both race and poverty because black people symbolically for a lot of people, they're the main minority we think of and they're the main poor folks we think of. So pop culture, because of these things, even if it doesn't want it, it just gets this responsibility of educating a lot of Americans about what black people are like. Now, that's if it didn't want that. The issue that I deal with is that, and this is where we get into maybe some of the unpleasant aspects of creativity in art, which is that these are dream jobs. Not everyone gets to be a journalist. Not everyone gets to be a writer or a novelist. And if you can't get people to consume, your, this applies to academics too. People may be familiar with that term, publish or perish. Like you need to be getting your content out there and the, you know, you and I are in positions like people still make movies about teenagers dreaming to get to be a writer. That's what I mean by dream job. So that puts this tremendous pressure on you to have something that people want to write about. And black Americans, people are very fond of saying, you know, not all black people are poor, but they don't really always appreciate what that means. It means that there's a black middle and a black upper class that has more income more wealth than the black lower class and there is a large market this has always been true of the american art scene maybe it's always been true of the western art scene there's always been this idea that grit and trauma and suffering that is the real art that is the high quality everything in the middle upper class it's cozy it's commercial it's mcdonald's it's not worth making art about 
So you have black middle and upper class folks who have these dream jobs that they want that are super competitive. They know that, especially right now when attention is so fragmented, you more or less need to have a gimmick. You need to have something that people want to write about and some sort of dedicated fan base. And they know that out there is an audience that wants the trauma, the suffering, the grit. So middle and upper class black folks have access to these stories of the black poor. And they know there's an audience that wants to read them. And so a proportion of them, not all black creatives do this, but a proportion of them that wants to see their name on the New York Times bestseller list, that wants to be in circulation and wants to have their art understood as important because a lot of artists don't want to make a political art. A lot of artists want their name in contention uh, of, you know, must reads. They want to be in the syllabus. They want to matter in the canon. And so doubling back pop culture, just the way it relates to black people, it is always going to have this responsibility, but now you have people who actually say, yes, give me that responsibility. Yes, you should watch my show to understand the plight of black folks. Yes, you should read my book. Yes, my movie is a story about my people, our people. And if I can trail on for one second more, anyone who sees American fiction, um, which is a movie that's you know in Oscar contention right now, I have a lot to say about American fiction, but I'll try to save that for writing. But just to give folks an idea of it, you have this movie based off a book called Erasure, where a educated, you know, solidly upper middle black man who likes to write high literary fiction gets annoyed at a black peer who writes in broken AAVE, you know, African-American vernacular English, writes in that dialect, writes the story that seems to get to that poverty exploitation that people think of. And he sees that other writer taking off and he's never written stuff like that. So he decides to write something that's meant to parody films like Precious, which is based off a book called Push. And supposed to get into all this and supposed to get into that whole idea of black folks being able to do this for commercial benefit. But behind the scenes, the film actually cuts out everything that the original author had to say about black poverty and class. It removes it almost entirely. And I mean, it removes it at a level of, if you think of the color purple without the lesbianism, without the domestic abuse, it's that level of cutting and the people involved in making the story, you have Cord Jefferson, black man, but son, of a lawyer. You have Jeffrey Wright, black man, son of a lawyer. You have two Stanford alums in the main cast. Um, they're the ones handling this and they're the ones who cut out all of the subject matter about class. And so these are the sorts of things that I'm dealing with uh, or that I'm trying to tease apart. And you see how long it takes me to just to lay that out. And it, it's harder because um, not because no, I'm special. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, yeah. I'm so glad that you brought the film up and I have definitely been thinking about you as I've been seeing all of the hype and that I saw like a very early trailer for the film and I was like, Oh, okay. This is like definitely on my radar because especially cause it's all about publishing and I work in publishing and you know, I've been thinking about these themes for years and not totally able to 
talk about it with people because there's so few people who are willing to open up and unpack these nuances around it. And um, actually haven't seen the film yet. I'm going to probably see it next week. Um, it's a solid film in a vac vacuum, by the way. Like the acting's good. It is funny. It's yeah. I mean, I love Issa Rae. I love Core Jefferson. I mean, I'm like, okay, this film has like so much going for it. So I feel like from what I can tell from the outside, it brings a ton of value. Everyone is like super talented who's involved and it's great. And I feel like it's sort of pushing the needle from what I can tell. Again, I haven't seen it yet, but at least these themes are starting to be looked at. They're starting, you know, I feel like the topics are starting to be poked at. My question ultimately, and, you know, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this, but is like, it, I mean, here's a question for you. At what point does, is there sort of a mutual shifting of the expectations where someone on the side of, who is from like a historically marginalized um, group says, well, I actually don't want to play this game, even if it means that I have to kind of stay small, right? Um, and then on the sort of like white majority side, the, it seems to me that for, for the needle to move forward in terms of not expecting such stereotyped creative output, there needs to be an acknowledgement of the reality that you are trying to bring to the table. You're, cause I feel like what you're saying and what I talk a lot about too, and, you know, sort of other communities is like look, there's so much diversity within diversity. You cannot have like a single portrayal of any one group of people. Um, but I feel like until that reality is really contended with on all sides, it's hard to have an honest conversation and it's hard to have art that reflects that reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> It does make sense. I do think you have to have the conversation coming from coming from all angles because how do I put it in the, in the actual book, they are the writer Percival Everett for Erasure, which is what American fiction is based off of. He goes, he's writing a satire and the joke he makes about the woman who writes the book that is pandering is she actually went to Oberlin college and she was a publisher in New York and she decides to write this, but it wasn't her life. And when she gets interviewed by an Oprah like figure, she says where what sparked the story for her was that she spent three days with her cousins in Harlem. So she's got poor black cousins and that's where she got this information. That sounds ridiculous, but people can look at my podcast record and find out that I've actually had that said to my face that everyone who, you know, all of these black creatives, they at least have cousins somewhere and they're somewhat aware. And, you know, just for the audience, because it can be hard to understand, I think, why I spend so much time on what seems like nitpicky. Very often when we put on, uh, when we're focused on like black folks, we have a very specific lens for interpreting what goes in the black space. So stepping out of that for a second, imagine saying the reason why you're allowed to make movies and television 
about gay men is because you have a gay cousin. That is your only connection that you've gotten to spend a weekend with your gay cousin. Now just apply that to anything. And then think about all the defenses of why we need female directors and writers and things like, well, every male writer has female cousins. He actually has a female mom. That's not reason enough to, uh, make him in charge of conveying the insights of that whole experience. When you go over to black space, though, if you have one poor black cousin, that is often used as a defense. So that needs that's kind of the outrage. And the fact that we don't deal with any of the moral questions there, it's like, well, are you cutting your cousin a check? Are you bringing your cousin into the writing? Like, what are you doing aside from the fact that you're telling your cousin's story, but probably not the way that they would tell it? And that's where some of my outrage that fuels my writing goes is that this excuse and this logic seems to only apply to my group, you know, the black poor intersection. No one else is really treated this way. Um, we've actually gotten to the point where, you know, I'll say for um, women, there's much more policing of when rich women are constantly like focusing on the stories of poor women, but maybe not doing enough research, not bringing them in that's you know, situation, Martin Scorsese just got a lot of praise for actually working side by side with the Osage Nation for doing um, Killers of the Flower Moon. So we see it, it just, it isn't policed for my group in the same way, in the way that I would like it to. Um, moving from trying to legitimize, legitimate my outrage, it is this real situation that black folks find themselves in where they would have to, if you're black middle or black upper class, um, you have this burden of being a pioneer because a lot of black, or I'm sorry, a lot of the consumers for black works, they, they're not really interested in another middle class or upper class story. They already have that coming from white writers. So if you're a black writer who's just trying to extract drama and tragedy out of, you know, an upper class life in Manhattan, it's harder to sell your book. But it is also the case, and I think a lot of people are missing this, that like, you can choose the smaller audience and there is that should be defended more like Percival Everett's book is an experimental novel written by a black man and that novel did get published. The author actually has written 20 novels and that novel also had multiple offers for it to be made into a film and it is a film now and it's an Oscar contender. And I think a lot of times, how do I put it? Um, this is a period, you know, very well, because, you know, our lives have been overlapping, but seventies, eighties, and, you know, nineties were considered like this heyday of sitcom writing. And you had this pipeline going straight from like Harvard national lampoon to the writer's room or from Columbia to the writer's room. And that's why everybody remembers these amazing sitcoms from that time. And then everyone found out, well, we could just do reality TV. And that would be so much cheaper than paying writers and actors and everything. And if you go back to the media criticism and commentary from like 2000 to like 2007, you see all these people talking about how, you know, we'd love to make better stuff. We'd love to promote better television, better whatever, but there's just no market for it right now. And then what comes right after that is the golden age of television, where apparently there was an audience for Mad Men and Breaking Bad and all of these things. So I feel like a lot of people pretend that they're forced to be commercial 
and to sell out and to pander and that, you know, they'd love to do the right thing. They'd love to do the moral thing. They'd love to hold out for art, but it just won't work. And I feel like recent history, particularly with the golden age of television, just proves that isn't true. And YouTube's doing something similar in certain areas where like for a while people were like, yeah, but YouTube only works if you do things quick. Five minutes, 30 seconds less. No one wants to spend more time than that. I mean, just look at cable news. And then we get to this moment, you know, the show that you're doing with me right now. Like I would never be able to talk for this length of time on any cable news station. Nobody would have thought this format would work. And then it turned out there was a huge audience for it. So there's just so many situations where people are saying that they have to pander or they have to do things that I consider morally like not above board just to survive, just to keep their artistic dream alive. And yet there's counter evidence all over the place that you don't necessarily have to do that. I love that. I think <clears throat> what's so unique about what you are bringing to light and, you know, kind of making more people aware of is, um, is the topic of class. I mean, there's so much attention already on race and gender. And I mean, we, we both know that class is like this very neglected topic. It's, there's a lot of interest in it, I think, in, um, in um, academia and sort of university campuses and as subjects of study in terms of the topic being discussed in pop culture or even within like friends and social circles. And it's, it's a very neglected topic. It's hard to talk about. I don't think people really have the vocabulary for it because it hasn't received as much attention. Um, so it, it does make me curious because class, of course, cuts across so many categories, right? Um, racial categorizations, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel like there's some potential uniting force there kind of like across different um, groups? Like, I don't know. I'm just imagining you're there in LA, like, you know, in Hollywood, are there, are there, is there growing interest in this topic? Is this something that other creatives can rally around? Is, are there working groups and things like this? Have you, have you thought about something like that? Getting to your earlier point, I um, so there is a lot of great stuff in what you just said. Uh, backing up just slightly, um, an initial blocker is that we don't have a good way of talking about class a lot of times. I'm actually, um, this past fall, I got to go via Zoom. I got to have five days at a very uh, extremely wealthy, high-earning high school in the Bay Area, and I got to give them what would basically be my overview of poverty. And if I could ask people to think back on like when they first heard about the poor and when they first got to high school, most people's experience dealing with poverty is just at some point during high school, you were probably asked to watch a congressional race or a presidential race. And the teachers wanted you to get into the habit of just answering these open-ended questions. And you were just supposed to weigh in on what the candidates were saying. And there's no point where they actually tell you what the definition of poverty is, how it's formulated, where it comes from. 
no one tells you is the poor that you hear being studied on TV the same as when somebody says poor in the New York Times or all the researchers you it's this big gap and um, you know it's just not a part of our formal education but we're asked to talk about it all the time either directly or by a matter of degrees if you're talking about homelessness you're talking about poor if you're talking about incarceration you're talking about the poor if you're talking about you know for most women in most states you know if you're talking about access to um family planning and birth control and thing like that it's bringing up class again it's probably the topic we get to vote on the most and of the you know marginalized groups and conditions Poverty is one of the only ones that anyone I talk to might end up in at some point. There's a lot of identities where it's like, that's an identity from birth. It, it's not something that you might be at some point, but we don't have an education on it. We just fill in the blanks. It's not really addressed. And without a language around it, and without people having a concept of it, it's very hard to build these sort of coalitions that you're talking about the other thing is that poverty has some built-in constraints you know when we think of people forming groups movements a lot of times you know if we think about black students together getting together or uh women journalists getting together to you know collaborate to have each other's backs the thing is that already presumes most of the time that you're out of poverty um you have the time to meet the resources to meet um poverty is so corrosive particularly of creativity it's very hard to this might help the audience as well just since i'm mentioning it um the u.s definition of poverty the only one that our u.s census uses and the one that every researcher is using unless they tell you otherwise is you calculate how much it costs to afford the minimum amount of nutrition. When I say minimum, I mean just enough to stop you from falling into vitamin D deficiency to prevent you from getting, you know, things like scurvy. You calculate that and you multiply it by three. If you make less than that number, it means that you're spending more than 30%, 33% of your income on food. That's poverty. It's an attempt to estimate the point at which to eat enough to not get sick, you probably can't afford clothing and shelter. To have enough shelter to be housed, you probably can't afford uh, food, at least not regularly. So if you imagine people in that position and what life is like, finding that extra bandwidth to get together to form groups of any kind is very, it's just extremely challenging. So. I see people talk about it. If I, what's it? There are organizations that have done something like that. I gave that bleak picture. I'm forgetting the name of the organization, but there is a book right now called Going for Broke. And it is a collection of essays and writing by journalists who have all either were raised in poverty or they've fallen into it. And um, from every different way, you know, people born and raised in poverty, but also um, the wives of, you know, war veterans where their you know husband gets sick it keeps declining in the aftermath sends them into deep poverty and they're part of an organization that specifically looks for journalists who 
are dealing with poverty who can write from the front line. So there are things like that, but hopefully this paints a picture of just how difficult it is to get there. And what I'm, what I'm hoping, because I'm not like completely cynical is I do believe a lot of the empathy for the stories about poor folks and for black poor folks. Um, I think it is genuine. I think a lot of it would like to actually help but people don't know enough about poverty to know the extra thinking they need to do to be supportive of those efforts. Um, right now, you know, these Oscars coming up are the first ones to have uh, these diversity guidelines where you need, it only applies to best picture, but you need to um, meet two of the categories to be considered for best picture, a certain percentage of your actors um, people in the background, all of this stuff have to belong to one of these groups. And it's a long list. It can be racial marginalization. It can be uh, marginalization for sexual orientation. They even have, and this does not happen very often, they even have for, um, they're concerned with ableism. So if a certain amount of your you know, crew is disabled, that counts. The only thing that isn't mentioned is growing up in poverty or currently living in poverty. Wow. And yet- yeah, you just you think about how many films and how much television is yeah. focused on class mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. So I you think, get it. There's this that, that's, that's I find that really frustrating because it's it's almost like being in a state of denial about the reality of, of money, you know, and the the obvious importance yeah. of money like it's just it's just so basic you know that it's taken for granted and no one is thinking about it and no one is saying oh hey like yeah we do need a category for this this is um this is a form of um you know accessibility i guess right i mean yeah like if you if you don't have the um the sort of class uh privilege and connections and all the social capital that comes with that to be able to, you know, enter into the industry and execute and produce the film and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling, I don't, this is so insightful, like everything you're sharing and it's so good to um, hear your perspective, you know, again, being there sort of in the heart of things and, and thinking through this stuff and knowing who else is out there. Um, how, how is this impacting you right now? Um, I know you're kind of managing and balancing different writing things and exploring, you know, what it means to be, you know, a little bit more of a full-time creative person. And um, it's, it's interesting because when you talk about class, I, I really can't help but think about um, as a creative how how unstable it, it truly is um it, it's very much gig work which means there are long pauses between paychecks um a lot of people that i talk to inside the industry who you know they are tv writers um uh definitely book authors deal with this but there are there are long periods there are long stretches of time when you are not employed. And that is the reality. And again, this is kind of one of my goals is for people to 
get an inside look because I think people only see the glamorous stuff. Like when you do have the thing published or when you are getting interviewed, but the reality behind the scenes is there's a lot of instability for me as a, as a full-time creative and working in publishing and um, producing and doing events and teaching, you know, there's just so much to manage, but I was just saying that it, it does affect your mental health and, and your health overall and your well-being. And there's just, there's so much to manage that um, goes along with, with being a creative. And I feel that this topic of, of class overlaps just inherently with all these other things, right? Like disability and, you know, mental illness and, you know what I mean? So I feel like in some ways, like class, it's, it's so much, it, it is so incredibly important. And it's so sad that we are not talking more about it because it does overlap with so many other experiences in real life, if that makes sense. That was very meandering, but. <laughs> uh, tighter than what I often offer. So you're good. Um, I think a point you made earlier about calling it money, something that I was very careful to do with students because people didn't do this with me and they still don't do it regularly. We talk about class a lot. It's a bit abstract and it invites a lot of other notions. I think what works best for people is just flat out money. So just to retrace some of what you said and then, you know, get to the same point with you, um, just for folks to understand, like right now for a family of poor, uh, like a family of three to four to be in poverty, you have to make less than $30,000 a year. That would just cover pretty much everybody. So if you're thinking of family for less than 30,000, that is the point where the U S government is like, Oh, we have to step in because otherwise you won't be able to afford food, clothing, shelter, and today, but not in the past, but currently medical insurance. Um, if you were to look at the very center of the American middle class, and these guidelines are kind of arbitrary, but the center for the American middle class is normally going to be around 60 to 62,000, maybe $67,000 a year for a household in America. So you can notice we've basically doubled the amount of income that the highest earning family in poverty is going to get. And to get to the American upper class, which is the top 20%, you have to essentially double it again so that the household makes at least say 130 to $140,000 a year. Um, so each of these classes, either their top, their center or their entry line, we're working with doubles here. A family right in the middle of the middle class has to have at least, you know, double what a poor family earns at the most and an upper class family has to earn double what a middle class family does. So when we think about taking on unstable gig work, you're in this ecosystem with someone who um, may be coming from a family that earns double what you do. And the reason why like where you're coming from matters is because for better or worse, a lot of people who are first getting into creative, you know, create, it does happen, but a lot of people aren't getting into the creative professions when they're in their like mid forties after they've saved up a bunch of money from doing something else. You're going into the fray in your twenties. And a lot of times you're still in this position where you can get support from your family and from that network and the people they know. And so that changes just a lot of things. It also changes like maybe 
I don't talk about this group as much, but um, this is something very familiar to people. Maybe you're a family the way it is and say like Lady Bird, where you are right at the bottom of middle class, or if you prefer bottom of working class. So you got a lot of debt coming out of college and you're going to try and pitch people. It's, it's challenging to your point about, you know, it being gig work and how long it takes to get paid. You might be pitching in one month and then that gets approved. So you get to say, let's say it's a prestigious organization like the New York times. Well, the pitch got accepted and now you're in this back and forth writing. Um, and that can be pretty protracted. Um, where it's like, you might get say three to six weeks to write the first draft. And then once the draft is accepted, you're waiting to hear back from that person and then they get back to you. And then you're kind of in the mill, like really trying to churn it out to get it by whatever date it's supposed to be done. And then it's finally published. Now we're maybe two to three months from when you first pitched it and it's out there and that's awesome. You haven't been paid yet and you might not be paid for a few more uh, months and my understanding is that the bigger publications like New York Times and The Atlantic, they're actually a bit more, they're a bit quicker than a lot of other organizations are. And that was for one pitch. And if you're lucky, you know, you're somewhere in the getting paid a dollar a word, you know, area for your efforts. So maybe you're walking away from this with something between like two and $3,000 before you pay your taxes. That was one pitch process. <laughs> if we're talking about like freelance journalism, so if you're a single individual, you need at least seven of those just to be at the poverty level, because poverty for one individual right now is going to be about $14,580 a year. So just slightly less than what you would make if you're working full time minimum wage at the federal minimum wage level. So for someone like myself, uh, just to give background, you know, for a long time, I was writing on the side while having a job that was paying me for a single, you know, for an individual with no children. Um, it was a top 20% income. I, you know, had cracked over $100,000 a year, having come from poverty. And it was, it was fantastic. It was hard to write around that. Um, but it was a lot of support and stability financially. Now, I'm in this position where um, I'm just living off savings after after having gotten laid off. But there is a point where I'm going to have to decide, like, do I want to be in this situation where it's always pitching? It's always trying to, like, pitch, write, work on a book and maybe scrape by to where, like, you know, if you're doing the math here, if you want to get to just 40K, um, you know, you, you need, like, you need to be working only for the bigger organizations. They need to be, I'll say for journalism, you need to be working only for like the bigger organizations. They need to be okaying pieces that are in the several thousand word mark. And you need to basically getting one approved per month. It's. Which is like almost unheard of. I mean. <laughs> I've never heard of it. For a very long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's. Um, yeah. It's, it's really challenging. Maybe you're. Yeah, maybe you've had this experience uh, and this is not to anyone who has support like i'm stoked for you like that's awesome you're gonna be able to put out like really good work and only pick the assignments where you can do good stuff it's really awesome but i think it's it'd be good if more people know i've talked to the college professors i've talked to the journalists i've talked to 
the screenwriters and the creatives, and they all kind of report the same thing to me where like the only people who are comfortable in this ecosystem either come from families of a lot of money where they can still count on financial support and more or less like a family credit card or the partner they've picked in life is the one who has the quote unquote serious job of being a lawyer or a psychiatrist or somebody in the C-suite. Um, anyone who's just kind of <laughs> doing it and really having to live off what they earn from this, uh, it's it's a challenging. So I just want to add that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically impossible. And, you know, I think that's another reality of American life that we don't really talk about, you know, the importance of of family and interdependence. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned, you know, having roommates and, you know, I mean, there's just, it's, it's not all glitz and glamor. And, um, um, you know, it's funny, the, the image that I always go back to, um, in my, my early days of, of book writing, I'd already been doing like magazine and online writing for a while, but, um, I was new to the book world and the book publishing industry. And I read somewhere, you know, this woman was preparing for her book launch, you know, big fun night, you know, it's like, yes, finally this book is out. And, you know, it's like so exciting, you know, and she, she wrote a piece talking about the reality was that actually she, you know, uh, walked into her book launch and as soon as it was over, had to change her clothes really quickly and go back to her waitressing job, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, it's just so perfect. It's such a perfect illustration of what this looks, what this is like, the reality, you know, you it's, you're preparing for the big, exciting thing, but then you kind of go back to your other like practical, real everyday mundane life, right? That, that is just the reality. Now, something I've been thinking a lot about, though, is that how valuable that is, like for for writers to stay tethered to the real world. You know, I think historically, and you know, I don't I don't know if you know Batya Unger Sargon. You know, she in in um, in her book that came out uh, a couple years ago wrote about the evolution of journalism, the history of journalism and how like in the streets of New York, it was very much this working class thing. It was all about documenting what was happening in the neighborhood so that people were just aware of what was happening. And to me, I find a lot of comfort and meaning and beauty in that because I think the more that we can stay tethered to the reality of kind of just everyday life for for most people the more real we are and the more grounded we can be and so to some degree i feel that the instability that comes with being a writer enhances our gift at the same time that's my perspective i don't know how you feel about that yeah, i think my focus what i what i really value in the setup that you said is actually the um is the tether I think, I don't, how do I put it? There's actually a really uh, great history of, you know, journalists, novelists, 
writers of all stripes who did really phenomenal work that ended up resonating with a lot of people because they were either writing while they had a day job and so they were still connected to the rhythms of everyday life or they didn't write till middle age after they had already worked every job you can possibly imagine. And so I think there's a lot of great value in that. I think the part of the instability I don't, I don't think is helpful is how little money you make. I think that's what upsets things. And I'm not, I, I think there are different currencies you can pay people in. I mean, I think getting to do something that you love, that when you're doing it, you finally feel frictionless, like you feel like you are doing the thing that makes the most sense to you. It's amazing. It's hard to put uh, you know, a price on that. I think um, you know, social regard, doing something that other people seem to care about. And then I think you know, there's obviously just flat out currency or there's power where you have control over your life or other things in your life. Like there's a lot of things there. Um, I think where we are right now, it's like, I don't, I don't need every writer to, you know, <laughs> be able to afford multiple Teslas and for it to be this luxury job where you're making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. But it does concern me that the, the money is so low a lot of times that, um, you have no buffer against anything. You have no nothing that can help you with the instability. Um, it's very nerve wracking. I think it makes it harder to engage in creative work. And I think, you know, the thing, I love this aspect of people who are working regular jobs participating in this. And it's actually, I could get more people who have had regular lives participating if they didn't have to get over this hurdle of so much financial instability. And um, yeah, so I love the tether to everyday life. If I could make like one um, specific like pop cultural criticism, more of like an anecdote to tell. But, uh, you know, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility, has been a really dominant architect in um, racial discourse in the US, particularly since George Floyd's death. If you take the time to read her book, in the openings of it, she tells the story of how she had been, you know, she got her degree um, studying, you know, multiculturalism, and she is participating in these workshops, and she's on her way with some of her collaborators to go and give a workshop on, you know, basically the same topics that she would be writing about later, um, about white privilege, white supremacy, things like that. She's going just to an ordinary American business, and in her mind, this is like in the late 90s, I want to say, late 90s, early 2000, very early 2000s. She's like, they're going to be so excited to hear this information. It's going to be so cool. It's going to be revolutionary for them. She's like really giddy in almost like a Leslie Nope fashion from like Parks and Rec. And then that doesn't happen. And what bothers me about that story, which she didn't, she didn't seem to notice this, is how are you in the position of a pop cultural commentator and a commentator on society that you didn't see that coming? When you compare the years that she's working on right now, or at that time, Bill Maher has a show dedicated to making fun of political correctness. 
married with children, dedicated to making fun of <laughs> uh, political correctness. South Park is out making fun of it. Um, SNL is doing sketches that makes fun of um, Antioch College's like dating policy for being too restrictive. And it's restrictive along lines that most of us would support now. But she is so isolated in her particular academic circle that she's not aware of what the rest of America is laughing at because she isn't tethered in the ways that you're talking about. I can't imagine somebody who has a day job in an ordinary working class area as a waitress or a bartender who's talking to people every day who could write pages like Robin D'Angelo wrote. I can't see that writing coming from anyone who's interacting with people every single day. Even if you had the same opinion of Robin D'Angelo and you wanted to make that critique, you would have started out with an awareness of what people are like. And I read so many things by people where it's just clear to me, there's no economic diversity in your friendship group. There's probably very little racial diversity. Um, I don't think you've ever been, I think once you got this job, I don't think you've been very far from anyone who works it. You you don't have one of those one of those circles, and it just if we're try, trusting people with this profession to tell us about the world outside of ourselves and the people we don't get to hang out with. If I'm living in Montana and I'm trusting this person to tell me what's going on in some urban part of LA, it matters that they're so cut off. Yes, such a good point. Also very well put. Um, I mean, you're bringing up the much talked about disconnect between, you know, sort of the university and the 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 public. Um, and there's, there's a huge divide. Uh, there's, there's so much to unpack there. In some ways, it's not that different than talking about Hollywood and pop culture, the making of pop culture, because it's, you know, it's just yeah. another bubble um, where people are just sort of, there's so much chatter amongst themselves and they're sort of co-creating their own world. Um, and that's happening in, you know, lots of different areas. I mean, you can say that's happening in tech, universities, Hollywood. Um, that is a danger. Um, I think, you know, earlier you talked about the sort of various kinds of media outlets that that exist right now and i'm i'm curious how you look at something like substack you know or even x you know formerly twitter um i know we connected through twitter and i for yeah. my own journey actually and feeling like there were others that I could connect with and talk to about all of these nuances and what's missing in media conversations and, um, you know, Twitter, which it was called a couple of years ago, was, was a really big part of that, you know, so there is, there's so much value in social media and these alternative uh, sort of media outlets when you can stumble across people who are able to be authentic in a public way and who are not bowing to whatever narratives are created in those bubbles, the narrative that's created in the bubble of academia or of Hollywood or tech or 
you know, any of these things. Um, so I have found that so valuable just to connect with people one-on-one and then you slowly start to feel like, oh, there's, there's a little bit of a community of, of here of people who want to have more real conversations. So, I mean, and even for yourself, as you're, you know, really growing your body of work, are you thinking about publishing in Substack? Um, I do think, I mean, well, for once I'll, uh, I'll <laughs> answer this question just uh, due diligence to your earlier question. Um, I'm going to be writing for a while. It's very challenging to do it by gig work, but I may end up with a day job again um, <laughs> relatively soon. So we'll see how we manage that, but it is hard to do. Um, in terms of these spaces, uh, you know, I don't think anyone who's creative and of millennial or younger age hasn't considered the possibility of bringing their work to a social media space. That's kind of the first, not if it's not the first thought, it's maybe the second thought. Um, I've considered it, especially as my own economic situation has returned to being, you know, precarious. The issue is, and this also ties back to something you were mentioning earlier. Um, and I want to say some of the writing around Sydney Sweeney um, from Euphoria and also from White Lotus gets at this. It's a part that people don't always appreciate about writing. Um, and it's not captured when you say gig work, but it's publishers are now primarily, that's how you get distribution. That is not how you get awareness necessarily. The writer, the creator is much more in charge of generating awareness and marketing for anything they do, including books, than they were previously. It's a big part of why they like, you know, these distribution networks like people who already have a following um, because then the marketing is kind of already taken care of. And so with social media, it's like it's this great power. I, I will say for the community aspect, because of social media, I've been able to interact with people like yourself and also a lot of people who were like me. And that's how they found me was just through their own whisper network. Someone was like, oh, this is totally the type of stuff that you would like to read. And that was great for me because I was going to find that otherwise. But the hardship for me when it comes to something like Substack um, and these other things is that marketing as aspect where you have to be concerned with how you're promoting yourself. And it's not that there's anything wrong with promotion or doing that or learning those skills, but it is this additional thing to learn. You go from someone who's primarily concerned with, you know, crafting sentences and the structure of paragraphs and working evidence into this whole thing, you know, all of these writerly skills to, and now I need to know something about SEO and algorithms and the correct way, you know, you already know this, but when you're the writer at a, at a, a periodical, you don't pick the title of the work. They pick that for you based on someone who works mostly with like search engines and algorithms and things like that. So now, again, there's nothing wrong with constant learning, but you're becoming this hyphen um, writer plus this plus that. And I would say from my personality, you know, if money's just flowing towards me, I can, I can make time to do that. And that sounds really cool, but it's a lot of extra stuff. And then marketing and selling yourself uh, in that way 
it's a little bit harder for my personality. And I'm saying that as a personal challenge. And I'm not saying any of this to be like, and that's why it shouldn't exist. There are some writers and creators who really flourish being in charge of all of that stuff um, and more power to them. So that's great. And then one other part of this, I will say is that I, something I would miss if I switched purely to Substack is that since I didn't go to school for writing, being plugged into these institutions and being connected to editors is how I get, uh, it's how I get put in contact with people who can do that craft aspect mm -hmm. of the writing yeah. process. You know, you have an editor, you have someone who's, who you're bouncing stuff off of. And it's, um, it feels much more like writing as a practice or a trade when I'm plugged into that network, as opposed to how it feels if I'm, you know, sending something off on Twitter or, yeah, I don't know. There's something about that, that like, this is obviously a very romantic notion of that part of writing, but there is this idea of writing as a trade that I like where there's people who are there on the team who are critical of what I do because they know that I can do good. And so they want to manage that with me and like writing alone right now on Subsack. It's very alluring. It could be financially lucrative for me, but I would, I would miss getting some of this writerly tradition that's been built into these institutions over a century, you know? Absolutely. No, I think that's spot on. I, and this is something that has come up in my other conversations with folks is like, the role of the editor is so important. It's so central. And it's, it's also the part of the, the, the thrill and the beauty of this work is, is that interactive, collaborative conversation that you're having through the written word and having somebody else engage with your work and pick it apart and give you the feedback and the process of refinement. There's so much learning that happens in that process. Um, and I would say for myself, you know, I had been writing for a while, <laughs> like I'm trying to think yeah. when, cause I went through that process too, actually, where I was like, why would I like just start my own thing? Like I'm so used to having editors and it really took doing my first book actually to get to the point where I was like, okay, like I can do this because the process of writing and editing a book is so intensive and you're so focused on the project and you're working, you know, for years sometimes um, doing all of that refining. And it's so much more intensive than when you're just writing a freelance article that's so much shorter and it's, yeah. there's like a few months in between the next article and that kind of thing. So I would just share that, you know, tidbit um, from my own life that I had been writing for a while as a freelance writer, very used to working with a variety of editors, then working on my first book for, you know, close to, to two years and, and just being in that flow constantly day in and day out with the same editor too, um, yeah. really helped refine my process of self-editing, I would say. And then I started dabbling and experimenting, um, with writing essays on Substack and kind of just got more comfortable and, um, you know, I, I don't do it a ton, but you know, I'm, when I have something to say and I want to put it out there, like I will. And, um, I, you know, the fun thing about Substack and I think every 
writer who's doing well on Substack, you know, you offer more than writing. Um, so in my case, I just have like a small group that I'm growing, but we meet every couple of weeks and we just have like the best conversations. And so I don't know, it's a nice like add on to the the actual writing part. And, you know, does it pay the bills? No, but it's a nice little like supplement. And it's it's just one of <laughs> many things that that we do. As I mentioned, you know, I'm teaching, writing, doing the book events, like, you know, there's so much. Um, yeah. So, well, I'm very excited to see where you land. If you go back into sort of the full-time thing and then your creative work is on the side, which is like a really great setup too. I had that for a couple of years and really thrived doing that. And I think it's good to experience like the various setups for this kind of work. Um, yeah. But yeah, is there anything else you want to share? Um, this has been so great. Yeah, the the only thing I want to share just to highlight again, uh, since I have the time is just um, going for broke. <laughs> I have no affiliation with the book, but it'd be great for people to read. I'm still working through it. And it's um, if you've ever really been interested in class issues and poverty, it's like I wish I had found this earlier because when I was first writing, I felt maybe like I was the only person coming from this background. Um, so it's great if there are any, you know, anyone out there wants to see that. And then um, if people are interested in my work, I mean, I'm always letting folks know on Twitter, um, you can find me, there's not too many Bertrand Coopers, you can just type in the handle at black trash. Um, so yeah, looking forward to what you do with Fantastic. this too. I got to see these other guests. Yes. Um, so great to, you know, connect and I can't wait to see, you know, where your work goes. I, yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, stay on for just a sec. I'm going to wrap up the conversation and thanks so much, Bertrand. It was great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me.